I'm going to um, continue in the Gospel of John with a little regression. I'm going to go back to another passage in John we already looked at, but from a slightly different angle this morning, and tie it into a Christmas theme. I'll be reading the scripture in a few minutes, not right at the start as I usually do, but you could open your Bible to John chapter 13. There should be an outline uh, that you can tear out of your bulletin if you'd like and track with the message. It also will be on the overhead, and uh, there are printed messages of the entire message at both exits and on the church website as well. And uh, you can access those. And as most of you know, the last 25 years, or 22 years, I should say, worth of sermons are on the um, church website. I want to talk about the spirit of Christmas. And if I asked you to complete that sentence, the spirit of Christmas is, uh, almost all of us would say, well, the spirit of Christmas is giving. Uh, We all feel good when we are able to give to someone, especially those in need. And, of course, the Salvation Army takes advantage of that by setting up bell ringers at almost every store in America. And so you're out this time of year, and you you might feel good to drop a few coins or dollars into the uh, kettle. But that's really impersonal giving in that you don't know who it's going to. And we're okay to do that, to give, and we don't know who's going to receive. But when it comes to giving to those we know, I would say that giving is kind of a misnomer because usually it could better be called exchanging. Uh, You've had this experience. Your neighbor brings over a plate of cookies for Christmas, and you're racking your brain thinking, oh, no, what can I give her back? You know, we want to even it up. It, It just feels awkward to receive without giving back. We want want to even the score. Now, I'd like to suggest something a little radical, and uh, that is that I think the true spirit of Christmas is receiving. Now, before you accuse me of being a greedy money grubber or something like that, let me explain that uh, I, I think that the heart of Christmas is the wonderful news that God sent his only son to this earth to give himself on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And you can't even up a gift like that. You can't repay it back. All you can do is receive it. But that goes against our human nature. And so I I hope this morning that in taking another look at a passage we've already looked at, we might see that the spirit of Christmas is receiving because at the heart of Christmas is God's grace, and God's grace can only be received. If you earn it, if you pay it back or try to, it's not grace. Grace is undeserved favor that you receive. Now, people have a hard time understanding the concept of grace because it runs counter to the world we live in. We work for a living, we get paid. We deserve it. We earned it. And life works that way. In school, you work hard for grades, you get the grade. You don't, you don't. That's the way life works. 
All of the world's religions, in fact, teach that the way to get into heaven or nirvana or whatever you want to call it in whatever religion, it has something to do with human works, with merit, with earning it. Marla and I spent an unforgettable New Year's holiday, some of you may remember, over the infamous Y2K when the world was supposed to melt down and all the computers shut down. We were way in the north of the Czech Republic in a little remote village that was literally on the border with Poland. You could go out and there was a a border marker you could step over uh, into Poland. And I was teaching a group of college students there. During a break, we were out walking around the little village just checking it out. And uh, a local man who spoke a bunch of languages, including English, befriended us and He uh, ended up uh, taking us on a nice hike, letting us see some of the beauty of the area. And then he even let us use his computer to email our kids and tell them we were still alive before the meltdown. And um, I, I did, during that week, I did one question and answer session, only one. And in the providence of God, as I'm right in the middle of the Q&A session with these students, The door opens and someone ushers in this man who had not been a part of our meetings. I thought, oh boy, what's coming now? Well, he sat and listened to us for a while and then he raised his hand and he asked, what is the difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world? And I just went, wow, Lord, thank you for that set up question where I can now share the gospel And so I told him that all the other religions in the world, including some that go under the banner of Christianity, because the Czech Republic, before communism took over, and it's now pretty much atheist, but before that, it had a semblance of the Christian faith. And I told him that all of the other religions of the world, including some that go under this banner of Christianity, are works-based. They teach that if you are a good person, if you try hard, if you go to church, you pay your tithe, you do this, you do that, eventually you build up enough merit to tip the scale and you get into heaven. But I said the Bible teaches, and then I quoted uh, Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies Not the good person, but the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. And so I was able to explain the gospel. Now, I don't know whether that man ever responded to the message. I've lost touch with him. But what I explained to him is what Christianity and what Christmas is all about. And that is that God um, sent his own son... And he sent him to forgive your sins, not based on your works, not based on your righteousness, not based on anything you can do, but based on his gift. And all you can do with that gift is receive it. Now, to illustrate that point, I'm going to turn back the dial a few chapters and go back to a text that we looked at earlier in John. It's not a Christmassy text in that... uh, It's really about the last day that Jesus was on earth before he was crucified, not his birth. 
And um, it captures at the same time, I think, the essence of what Jesus came to do. And I hope to show, therefore, the essence of Christmas. And that is that the eternal word took on human flesh and dwelt among us for a reason. And it's the story in John 13 of how Jesus got up from the Last Supper and uh, took a basin of water and a towel and washed the disciples' dirty feet. And it's a parable, in effect, of why Jesus came into this world and then also of what he would send his disciples, that includes us, out to do in this world. So I want to read again for you John 13, verses 1 through 17. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end or to the utmost. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God, and was going back to God, got up from supper, and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin, excuse me, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you? Wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do now, or what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you're clean, but not all of you, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you should also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Just want to point out three things from that story. And again, we dealt with, with it a little more thoroughly than I'll do this morning before if you want to go back and reread that message. But first of all, would you note that Christ came to give to those who can never repay him. He came to give to those who can never repay him. John begins in verses 1 and 2 by noticing that the foot washing took place during the Passover And that calls attention to the fact that Jesus is our Passover lamb. You'll remember the story out of Exodus when the Jews had to slaughter the Passover lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorposts and lintel of their home. And in doing so, 
the angel of death passed over their homes. And Jesus, when we apply his blood to our lives, God passes over us the judgment that we deserve. John also notes there in those first verses that Jesus loved his own who were in the world and that he loved them to the end or to the utmost. And it's significant that on a night when Jesus was grieved about his own looming death, knowing what was coming, at a night when he could expect that they would minister to him, here he is ministering to them, thinking of their needs. John also notes in verse 3, and here's my link to Christmas, uh, that Jesus had come forth from God. He didn't begin his existence there in the manger or when he was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. He is the eternal Son of God. He left the glory of heaven and came forth from God, and he is going back to God But he came to be born so that he could die for our sins. Jesus, I mean, John also notes that the Father had given all things into Jesus' hands. And those are the hands that would bear the nails the next day as he died on the cross for our sins. And they're also the hands that in this story would take those dirty feet and wash each one. Uh... Ray Steadman, in a book on the Upper Room Discourse here, points out the parallels between Jesus' enacted parable here and Paul's well-known words in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I won't read those verses, but you may remember that Paul there says that we are to have the same attitude in us that was in Christ Jesus who didn't regard his equality with God something to be selfishly clung to, but he laid aside his glory, took on human flesh, even to the form of a servant, was obedient to death, and because of that, God has highly exalted him and given him now the name above every name. Well, the same pattern is here, as Stedman points out in this story, in that Jesus here, arises from supper and lays aside his garments even as he rose from his throne in glory and emptied himself or laid aside his glory to come to this earth. And then Jesus girds himself with a towel and uh, does this lowly servant task of washing the disciples' feet, just as Paul says in Philippians that Jesus took on the form of a servant. And then Jesus poured water in a basin just as the next day he would pour out his own blood on the cross. And both were for cleansing the water here literally to cleanse the disciples' dirty feet. But Jesus, in as Paul says, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, uh, his blood cleanses our hearts from all sin. And then after he had washed their feet, it says he took up his garments again and reclined again at the table. And as Paul says there, after Jesus was obedient to the point of death, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name above every name, and he is now at the right hand in glory. Hebrews 1.3 sums it up. It says, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so in this short foot-washing drama, you kind of have a picture 
of the redemptive work of Christ, that he left glory, came to earth, not as the king the first time, but as a servant, was obedient to the point of death. That death brings cleansing to all who will apply it to their lives. And now he is risen again and in heaven on high. But, as you know, there is a twist in the story. And the twist involves good old Peter, who is often at the center of some of the twists in the gospel stories. I believe there was a stunned silence as Jesus began, not with Peter, but some of the other disciples. And they're all in shock because a master just didn't do this for his pupils or his uh, servants, his disciples. And so it's puzzling to them. And he gets to Peter, and in typical fashion, verse 6, Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And in the Greek text, those pronouns are emphatic. So uh, it shows Peter's shock. Someone like you, Lord, washes my feet. And then we read in verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, what I do You do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And then following in the text, Peter says to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answers him, If I don't wash you, then you have no part with me. And then Peter goes overboard the other way. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Give me the whole works. And Jesus says to him, He who is bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, speaking, of course, of Judas. Now, that interchange pictures God's grace, which is at the heart of the message of Christmas. And that is that we begin with Christ by having him wash us all over. That's the bath. The scripture calls it the washing of regeneration. When you're born again, God forgives all of your sins through Christ's shed blood on the cross. And it's once and for all, and it doesn't need repeating. But then we all walk in this dirty world, and in that day when you walked in the dusty roads with sandals on, your feet got dirty. And so that pictures maintaining our relationship with Christ. We all sin, and we all need to apply the shed blood of Christ, which covers all our sin again and again and again, And that's what's pictured here in the foot washing. And by telling Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. I believe what Jesus meant was, if Peter could not allow Jesus to wash his feet, then how could he submit to Jesus to save him and to serve him at all? So we begin with Christ by grace, his grace. We receive it and we walk with Christ in his grace. It's all of grace from start to finish. None of it is deserved. And none of the disciples deserve to have Jesus wash their feet. None of them could say, I've been a really great disciple. And so you owe it to me, Lord. No, they all were shocked here with the grace that Christ has shown. But Peter here is uncomfortable. And he's thinking, you know, the table should be reversed. I ought to be the one washing your feet, Lord. And as you know, at the end of John 13, Peter is saying, Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. But as we know earlier, Peter said, 
God forbid that you should lay down your life for us. That just doesn't seem to fit. So Peter's struggling at this point, as we all do, to understand this concept of grace. It's one way. We don't pay it back. We can't even up the score. We can't do something for God to earn it or, you know, well, let me make it up to you. All we can do is receive it. And the story shows us that Christ came to cleanse us from our sins and to have a relationship with him. You begin by receiving his grace. You have to receive his grace. And then you have to walk in his grace. And it's not a minor point because Jesus said, if you don't do that, you don't even have a part with me. If you don't walk in grace and receive my grace, we don't have a relationship. So it's really essential that we understand this. Now, at first glance, Peter's refusal to let Christ um, wash his dirty feet looks like humility. I think actually, though, it stemmed from pride that Peter just wasn't comfortable with receiving from Christ. His pride made him want to even the score. And that leads to the second point I'd like to make this morning, and that is that to enter a relationship with Christ, we have to judge our pride and then receive his salvation with no thought of repaying. No thought, I can give it back to you, Lord. I'll make it up, you know, and then we'll be on an even basis. It doesn't work that way. Now, there are two sides to this. First of all, to enter into a relationship with Christ We have to judge our pride because pride prevents us from receiving God's grace. See, pride wants to reciprocate. It wants to even the score. Pride is embarrassed by saying, you know, I am needy and all I can do is receive. I can't give back to to do my part. And so pride wants to always offer God something to pay its way. And then, of course, the proud person can take some credit for uh, getting right with God. To come to God, however, we have to recognize, God, I come empty-handed. The only thing I deserve from you is judgment because I have sinned. And so the only thing I can receive from you is grace, a free gift. Now, pride takes different forms. Sometimes, as here, pride often hides under the mask of humility. And I think Peter's uh, protest in verse 8, never shall you wash my feet, sounds humble, but on probing just a little deeper, I think it stems from pride because he's saying, you know, I mean, these other guys have let you wash their feet, but I'm a notch above them. I'm not going to do that. Actually, I'm a notch below them in my proud humility, you know, but but I'm not going to let you do that to me. Uh, I should be washing your feet, so I know better than you, Lord, about what's going on. Another mark of pride is embarrassment, and I think Peter's embarrassed by this whole thing. I mean, maybe these other guys needed their feet washed, but not Peter. Not good old Peter. He's loyal. He's true blue. He's going to give his life for the Lord. You know, I, I read once a funny story that Elizabeth Elliot told one time when her daughter was little, she heard, overheard her singing to her cat, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you. 
And you know, that's where pride comes in. You know, you, you need grace, man. You're a wretch. But me, hey, you know, I, my feet are pretty clean. Another mark of pride is discomfort with being close. And as I explained when we studied this passage, the only way you can have somebody wash your feet is to get pretty close. And when they get close, and remember, this wasn't a foot washing ceremony where everybody washes their feet before they go. These were real dirty feet. And when you get close to real dirty feet, you go, oh, they, they're not only dirty, they stink. You know, our feet just have a way of giving off an odor. And that's kind of embarrassing to let someone else get close enough to smell the odor and see the dirt on your feet. But to allow the Lord to wash the sins from your life, you have to expose it all. Of course, he knows it all anyway. But you have to come and say, Lord, you know everything about my life. You know all the guilt. You know all the sin. You know all the dirt. But Lord, I need your grace. Another mark of pride is an independent spirit. Every one of the apostles was perfectly capable of washing their own feet, and they probably would have felt better about that than letting Jesus wash their feet, just like people feel better about being able to do something for salvation. You know, that makes me feel good, that I can do something to earn my own way. But to receive, that's kind of humiliating. You know, Lord, really, I'd rather do it myself. That's pride. But we all have to come to Jesus and say, Lord, no, my feet are way too dirty. I couldn't get them clean if I scrubbed them all my life. You have to clean them. And then a last observation. Pride is sometimes the driving force behind Christian service, serving Jesus, because Sometimes people who serve the Lord do it out of pride, thinking that they're somehow going to pay Jesus back for what he's done. And you can always tell when someone is serving out of pride because invariably they get their feelings hurt. And the reason they get their feelings hurt is people don't give them the appreciation and the strokes that they feel they deserve. You know, if they only knew how many hours I put in behind the scenes, getting ready for, rah, 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 you know, and so they're wounded because they want to pay back. I did, and I want to get it back. And that's pride. Now, we should serve Christ, as I'm going to point out on the third point here. But it ought to come from gratitude. From gratitude and not from paying him back. And so to cite Isaac Watts' familiar hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And so to begin a relationship with Christ, you've got to come to the cross by judging your pride. And that means that you repent of your good works. You know, we talk a lot about, oh, you've got to repent of all your sin. You do. But most of our number one sin is my good works that I am proud of. And I think those commend me to God. No, I have to repent. Those good works won't get me an inch closer to God. They'll only keep me from him. And then the second half of it is that to enter a relationship with Christ, we have to receive God's grace with no thought of repayment. 
Salvation is God's free gift to those who deserve his judgment. And the reason it's possible is that Jesus paid the penalty we deserve. That's what the most, one of the most familiar verses in the Bible is all about. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, and in John's gospel, the world is that which is opposed to God, that which is in rebellion against God. God so loved that world that he gave his only begotten son on the cross is the implication of that. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, if somebody comes to you at Christmas and offers you a nice gift, the only polite thing to do is receive it. And so John 1.12 explains, But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, and receiving him is the same as believing, because it says, even to those who believe in his name. And so God gave us his son as a free gift. You receive that gift by putting your trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross, not in what you can do for God, but in what God did for you. Because you'll never earn enough points to go to heaven. All the good deeds you do won't outweigh the sin. I've explained before, it would be like going before a judge and you're guilty of some heinous crime. And you say, but judge, I, I've spent hours, you know, going over to the old folks' home and serving those people. And, and judge, I, I've given hundreds of dollars to the Toys for Tots program. And I've, I've done, and you add up all your good works. And the judge says, yeah, but you're guilty. You, you committed this terrible crime, and that doesn't erase it. You're guilty, and that guilt must be paid for there to be justice. And the good news of the gospel is God paid in Jesus what we deserve. But we still want to pay, don't we? Let's suppose, I know this didn't happen to any of you, but let's suppose at Christmas time you got an invitation to go to Bill Gates' home for dinner. And you were one of hundreds of guests. It was a lavish affair. And you get to the Gates' mansion and the guards check your ID and let you in, and you go in, and there's just more food than you could eat in a hundred dinners, and it's just a gala affair, and there's entertainment, and there's just a wonderful night, and as you're going out, you shake Mr. Gates' hand, and you put a quarter in it and say, Mr. Gates, I know this cost you a lot, and I just would like to kind of, you know, do my part to pay you back. Well, that would be an insult, wouldn't it, to his generosity, and of course, it wouldn't help at all, he doesn't need your quarter. He's got billions. But you see, when you come to Christ that way, that's what you're doing. You're insulting him and saying, I realize that, that you shed your blood for my sins, but here, here's my quarter of my good works. Let me just pay you back. It's not understanding God's grace. We see this illustrated in the well-known parable of the prodigal son. You know the story. The prodigal goes out and he squanders his inheritance on loose living. And finally, he hits bottom and he's slopping pigs and he's even eating the, the food that's fed to the pigs, which for a Jew who thought pigs were unclean, I mean, this is the low of the low of the low. And he finally comes to his senses and he says, you know what? Even the, the slaves at my dad's house have plenty to eat. And, 
they're treated decently, so I'm going to go home to my father and tell him that I've sinned. And he gets up, and he's rehearsing in his mind his spiel, what he's going to tell his dad. And his father sees him from afar, and it's such a moving story. And he loses his dignity. In that society, an older man never girded up his loins and ran. But his dad, forget cultural convention, he pulls up his robes so he doesn't trip, and he runs to his son, and he warmly embraces him and brings him home and throws a party. And uh, he could have easily said to him, you know, you smelly, dirty, no good excuse for a son. Make a U-turn right here and go back to where you were. I don't want you to be under the roof of my house. He could have done that. That would have been just. But that wasn't the father's nature. His nature was to show his son grace. And then the story doesn't end. And the crux of the story is the older brother, you know. He's been out working hard in the field. And he comes in. And here's the party going on. He calls a servant over. and says, what's going on? Well, that brother of yours came home. And your dad threw a party. And he is incensed. I mean... He's just thinking, you know, this is crazy. And the dad comes out and pleads with him, come on in to the party and join the celebration. And the brother says this. This is Luke 15, 29 and 30. And he is indignant. He says, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, you can't even call him his brother, this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. There's a man who didn't understand grace. In fact, he didn't even like grace because he wanted to earn his way. Look at my record. It's impeccable. I have worked hard for you all of these years. I deserve your favor. And I'm cashing in on it. I want what I deserve. That's the way so many people relate to God. You know, I don't want grace. I want what I deserve because grace is for the no good scum like my no good brother. And the story shows that if we aren't like the brother... We have no part with Jesus. We all have to come to see even our self-righteousness, the self-righteousness of the older brother was equally heinous and sinful in the eyes of a holy God as the flagrant behavior of the younger brother. We have to repent of our good works and we have to come to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm dirty. Would you cleanse me? That's grace. And only then, in that context, and only in that context, then can we serve. And that's the third point I want to bring out, that it's only when we have re learned to receive God's grace that we then can learn to give and serve properly. Down in verse 14 of our text in John 13, after Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he says to them, If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. His doing to us is first, 
But then, as a result of receiving his grace, yes, then we can serve freely. And once you've let Jesus wash your dirty feet, then you have a basis to wash others' dirty feet, but also, and this is harder, to let them wash your dirty feet, to receive grace as well as to give grace. Now, let me just apply this in four ways, and we'll wrap it up here. First of all, when we've received God's grace in Christ, then we can freely forgive those who have wronged us, and we can ask forgiveness when, others, when we have wronged others. We're all imperfect sinners in process, and that means you cannot deepen or maintain relationships without forgiveness. Two-way. Asking forgiveness when you've wronged, granting forgiveness when others have wronged you. Remember the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18 about the man who was forgiven a debt of 10,000 talents? A talent was a unit of money. 10,000 talents was an exorbitant amount of money. It would be equivalent to 150,000 years wages for a, a hired servant, hired hand. I mean, just you can't even conceive how much money he owed. The, the master said, I forgive you. And then that servant goes out, grabs somebody by the lapel, another servant that owes him about 100 days wages. Now that's a significant amount. It's not like it was a quarter or something. 100 days wages was a good amount. But he says, pay up, man. And if you don't, he throws him in debtor's prison. And Jesus says, uh-uh, that's not, that's not right. And the point of the story is, God has forgiven you the 150,000 years of debt for your sin. And so you need to forgive those, even if they've really messed up and wronged you. You need to forgive them. Because withholding grace from those who wronged you is simply not a Christian option. A second way to apply this is when we've received God's grace in Christ, then we can offer correction to those who are in the wrong when uh, somebody has sinned. And we can receive correction, too, when we're in the wrong. And Paul describes this element of foot washing in uh, Galatians 6.1. He says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You don't use scalding water to wash their feet. Spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So there's a real built-in humility there that my feet probably are going to need washing by somebody else sometime. But I'm on this side of it offering washing to a brother who's in fault. And we need that ministry because we all stumble from time to time. A third aspect of this grace of Christ is that when we've received God's grace in Christ, then we can serve others with the right motives and with the right expectations. See, if you aren't serving from this, the mindset, I am a recipient of grace, then you're going to expect some payback. You know, I spent all those hours and no one noticed and your feelings will get hurt, and you'll be wounded, 
and uh, you'll feel unappreciated. But when you realize, you know what? I'm not doing this for payback. I'm doing this out of gratitude because God forgave all my sins in Christ. And it's the least I can do for the Lord. Not to pay him back, but just to say thank you. Then you can serve without the expectations. And then finally, when we've received God's grace in Christ, then we can freely give our resources to the Lord's work. Again, you recognize all that I have is a gift. God gave me everything, including my home, my resources. Everything I have is from God. Then that frees you up to give to others. And you're not doing it to earn points with God. You're not doing it to gain leverage over someone so that they will uh, now owe you one and feel indebted to you. But Jesus said in Matthew 10, 8, Freely you have received, freely give. Or the Apostle Paul in a section on giving put it this way, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, he said, And God is able to make all grace, there's that word, abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And he's talking there, about giving to the needy saints in Jerusalem. And so the foundational question I just want to leave you with this morning is to make sure, have you received God's free gift, His grace that He offers through His Son, Jesus, who came to this earth so that He could wash away the dirt from your life, the sin? He did it all on the cross. To receive that gift, you have to admit, yep, my feet are dirty. In fact, I'm dirty inside, and only Jesus can clean me. And all the good works in the world are never going to erase that debt of sin, and so, God, I need grace. I need grace. And that's what the cross is all about, that God sent his own son to bear the penalty we deserve, and he took that on himself so that we can go free. Paul sums it up very succinctly in a well-known verse, Romans 6.23. He says, the wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, have you received that gift? J.C. Ryle tells a true story about a mother whose daughter ran away. And she fell into quite a life of sin. For a long time, no one even knew where the daughter was at. But eventually, that daughter returned. She mourned over her sins. She repented. She trusted in Christ to forgive her and save her. And someone once asked the mother, well, what did you do to get your daughter back? I mean, what means did you use? And the mother said, well, of course, I prayed day and night for my daughter when she was gone. But then she said, but I did one other thing. She said, I never went to bed at night without leaving the front door unlocked. Because she said, I was afraid that maybe some night my daughter would come home and try the door and find it locked and turn away. And so she said, I always went to bed leaving that door unlocked. And so it happened one night 
the daughter came home in the middle of the night and tried the door, and it was open. And she came in never to go out and sin no more. And that open door is a picture of the grace of God to every sinner. The door is open because Jesus paid the debt. And all you got to do is come home. Come home to him. And he welcomes every sinner because Christ paid it all. That's what Christmas is all about. That Jesus came to do what we could never do for ourselves. He came to erase the debt of our sin. But you have to come home. You have to receive him. And that's why the true spirit of Christmas is not giving, it's receiving. Receiving the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we all would understand and live by your grace, that we would receive the grace that you offer in Christ, and if any are here under the guilt of their sin, that they would recognize that they can never pay it. They can only receive your gift and that they would do so by putting their trust in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would be gracious people to one another because we all sin. We all need our feet washed again and again and again. And I pray that this church would just ooze your grace in our relationships. Not that we would tolerate sin in our midst, that would not be loving, but that we would offer the grace of Christ to every repentant sinner, that we would urge everyone in sin to turn back to Christ and receive the grace that he offers, and that this church would be known for the grace that we radiate because of your great gift of your Son. In Jesus' name, we come before you and ask these things. Amen.